Good morning. It's good to be together again to worship God in this place, to actually um, be and become the church constituted. That is, to be the assembly of gathered living stones that make us a spiritual house, a temple of the Spirit, with Jesus Christ himself as the cornerstone, as the Apostle Peter describes these things in his letter. And so as we are now gathered... Let's then continue this morning with our ongoing study of Paul's letter to the Romans. We are picking up this morning with verse 7 of chapter 11 and working through to verse 15 of that same chapter. Which means, as we saw last week, we're sort of in the home stretch of what has been an extended look at chapters 9 through 11. Certainly one of the more difficult sections in a, in a challenging letter uh, all by itself, but this section in particular has been fairly challenging, but an important one for us to look at together as God's people. In this section, that is chapters 9 to 11, Paul has been dealing with the whole matter of the Jewish people and their rejection of the Lord Jesus Christ in his day, at least the majority of them, and which continued to manifest itself in their ongoing resistance to the preaching of the good news, the gospel, by Jesus' disciples. Now, addressing this matter, Paul has gone to significant lengths to explain the source or the cause of the Jews' unresponsiveness. In chapter 9, he made it really clear, I think, that the ultimate source of their rebellion could be found in the plans and the purposes and the decisions and the actions of God himself. Paul, in that chapter, likened God's freedom in this area to the freedom that a potter has to take a lump of clay and out of one part of that lump of clay make something that's useful and honorable and beautiful and then out of another part of that same lump of clay to make something for dishonorable use. That's the picture that Paul used. Then at the end of chapter 9 and throughout chapter 10, Paul added to that explanation, making it equally clear that God's sovereign purposes notwithstanding, the Jewish people were still responsible for their rejection of the gospel. They did not submit to God's righteousness, but they sought to bring about their own form of self-righteousness by law-keeping. They didn't embrace the gospel, even though it was not far away from them. It was very near to them, as Paul said. Even though God had sent them his word and sent them many, many messengers and prophets, still they resisted. And so having presented both of those realities, right, uh, divine sovereignty and human responsibility as two sides really of the same coin, Paul then goes on, in chapter 11, as we saw last week, to address not only the causes of Israel's unbelief, but also the consequences of that unbelief. And essentially, he's answering this question. Does the fact that Israel wanted to have nothing to do with Jesus mean that God is now finished with them? Or to put that another way, does Israel's rejection of God's Son mean that God himself has now once and for all rejected them? We started looking at that question last week as we concentrated on Romans 11, 1 to 6, where Paul, in response to that question, gives a very firm, very emphatic no. And then after his response, he says God hasn't rejected them. He gives three reasons to support his answer. He gives an, an autobiographical reason, he gives a theological reason, and he gives a biblical historical reason to support it. Which leads us then to the verses before us this morning, Romans 11, 7 to 15, Before we take a look at what's going on there, please pray with me. Father in heaven, please help us now to find good and helpful things in your word this morning. 
more than that, help us to see you in your word. Help us to look through the lens of these scriptures to the God who stands behind them, the God who has authored them and commissioned them, who has preserved them, who still speaks by means of them. Cause us, Father, to know and love you more and better and use that knowledge to inspire an imitative pursuit of you. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's listen now to Romans 11, 7 to 15. Uh, As we turn our attention there, please hear me say this. Out of all that is said this morning, uh, this part that I'm reading, these scriptures, that's the only thing you're going to hear that's completely and utterly reliable and absolutely true. Everything else that I say is surely flawed, which means this. It means it's your responsibility to listen carefully to what I say and to search the scriptures yourselves to see if what is said is in accordance with them. And if it is, then respond faithfully to that which is faithfully spoken, but throw everything else out. That being said, let's hear the passage. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened, as it is written. God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Now, I'm speaking to you Gentiles. Inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world... What will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? After responding to the question of whether God has rejected Israel, Paul then responds to a follow-up question, what then? What then? Which I take it is Paul essentially asking the rhetorical question, what are we to make of the present situation of Israel then? And then Paul, because it's a rhetorical question, goes on to answer it. And what Paul does is he looks at his people, the Jews, the people of Israel, and he sees two things going on at the same time. On the one hand, he sees that there is definitely a remnant that is responsive uh, to God, and specifically to the gospel, just as always been the case. Clearly, they're a small minority of the whole, uh, but they're definitely there, as we saw last week. And their ongoing proof, just as Paul himself said he was ongoing proof, that God, at the very least, hasn't completely rejected the people of Israel as a whole. And yet when Paul looks at his people, when he looks at the Jews, he sees that the vast majority of them haven't responded to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so if they aren't responding to their own Messiah, if that's true, and it is, but then if it's also true that the people of Israel haven't been completely rejected by God... 
And if it's true that God keeps his promises, then what's going on? How does, how does all of that work out? What then, says Paul? What are we to think about all this? And Paul's answer comes in two parts. Verses 7 to 10 are one part. Verses 11 to 15 are the other one. Verses 7 to 10, Paul's first response is to affirm that yes, Israel did fail to obtain what they're seeking, for the most part. The elect, a subset, a minority, a handful, received it, but the rest did not. But more than that, not only did the majority of God's people not receive it, Paul says they were hardened. They were hardened against it. Now that's quite a mouthful. There's a lot in there. So let's unpack it just a little bit to see if we can understand it a little better. First of all, when Paul affirms that God's people, Israel, did not receive that which they were seeking, what's he talking about? What, what were they seeking? And the most obvious answer to that is to see as a reference to what we saw earlier in Romans 9, 30 and following, which talks about how the people of Israel pursued a law that would lead to righteousness. They pursued a law-keeping that would lead to righteousness. That's what they were seeking. A law-keeping that led to righteousness, and that's what they failed to obtain. And they failed to obtain it because the only way to achieve a right standing with God, righteousness with God, is by grace, through faith, and not by works. Now, yes, a small minority obtained it, a remnant, a handful that was chosen by grace, as Paul says in verse 5. God graciously saved and drew to himself some of the Jews, as the gospel accounts confirm. But the overwhelming majority did not obtain a right standing with God. Why? Well, from a divine perspective, and that's what we're getting here, but from a divine perspective, they didn't obtain it because, as Paul says, they were hardened, which means their hearts were hardened. Now, Paul's talked about God's hardening of human hearts before now, but when he talked about it before in chapter 9, it was in conjunction with comments he made about Pharaoh and Egypt. But now he's talking about God hardening not just the heart of a pagan ruler, but the hearts of his own people. So what is this hardening to which Paul refers? And what does that mean? Well, to clarify it a little for his readers, Paul references the scriptures in verses 8 to 10, drawing from at least three different places, Isaiah 29, Deuteronomy 29, and Psalm 69, to kind of flesh this out a little bit to see what it means. The first scripture he alludes to is Isaiah 29. And all he's doing, that, pulling from there is this little phrase, spirit of stupor. And he uses that phrase to talk about the hardening that God brings upon his people. Isaiah used this description of God's people in his own day. And he saw it as evidence of God's judgment on his own generation. And what Isaiah meant, and what Paul means after him, is that God visited upon his people a kind of spiritual numbness and insensitivity. It is to say that a kind of spiritual deadness descended upon them, rendering them unresponsive to the things of God. So that's one image that Paul uses to talk about this hardening that God brings about. And then he goes from Isaiah 29 to Deuteronomy 29 when he talks about those who have been hardened having eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear, further strengthening this idea of spiritual inability. 
They cannot see and understand spiritual realities. You see Jesus referencing this passage numerous times in the New Testament when he says things like, He who has ears, let him hear. He's referencing Deuteronomy 29 when he says that. Even further, it's this very same language and thinking that lies behind something that Paul said in another letter, his first letter to the Corinthians, chapter 2. He says this, Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, purpose clause, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person, says Paul, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. Why? For they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand because they are spiritually discerned. So Isaiah 29, Deuteronomy 29, and then a further description of this hardening that God brings on his own people. Paul quotes from Psalm 69, verses 9 to 10, which kind of widens out our understanding of hardening a little bit further. Uh, And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so they cannot see and bend their backs forever. Regarding what Paul means when he says, let their table become a snare and a trap, one writer explains it this way. He says, the table here is the table where they're eating. It probably represents bountiful food and the pleasure of eating. In other words, it probably stands for the simple, ordinary, good things of life. So I take this to mean that their hardness of heart includes the misuse of food and other good gifts of God. These good things given by God become a stumbling block and a trap. And I assume that means that they fall in love with these things. The pleasure that they get in the things of the world, replaces the pleasure that they should have in God. And so their physical appetites deaden their spiritual appetites, and they lose all desire for God. Now the fact that Paul quotes from passages like Deuteronomy 29 and Isaiah 29 to support his assertions about God hardening the hearts of his own people, just that fact tells us Something important. It tells us that this hardening has been around, that it's been going on, it's been coming for a long time. So when Paul in Romans 9 to 11 is talking about, in the first instance, the unresponsiveness of the Jews to the Lord Jesus in his own day, the reality is that what he's been seeing and experiencing in his own lifetime is actually something that began to make an appearance hundreds and hundreds of years before even back in the days of Moses. Paul references God's people back in Moses' day, which is more than 1,400 years before. And then says that the things that were going on way back then, this hardening of hearts that was still going on, that was going on back then, is going on down to this very day, says Paul. It was happening then, it's still happening this very day. Which then raises a further question. Well, how long is this going to keep going on? It was going on way back when. It's still going on. How long? We don't get an answer right here, but we look ahead in Romans eleven twenty five. We do. Lest you be wise in your own sight, Paul writes, I don't want you to be unaware of this. Mystery, brothers. 
he says, a partial hardening has come upon Israel. For how long? Paul says, until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. There's way too much there that we're not going to deal with today because we're going to deal with it in a later message when we get there. But the thing I don't want you to miss is the indicator that this gives us as to how long this hardening of hearts of God's people Israel is going to take place. How long? Until the fullness of the Gentiles, that is the non-Jewish people, has come in. In other words, until all of those outside of God's chosen people who are going to be saved have been saved have come in to the kingdom of God. When, we, when will that be? I don't know. But it clearly hasn't finished happening. People are still being saved. People are still responding to the gospel. So how long has this hardening been going on? From Moses' day until today, Sunday, May 11th, 2014, to be continued. I'll say more about this in a moment, but the thing I want you to see again is that when Paul talks about God working in or on or through his people in space and time and through this vehicle of human history, when Paul talks about that sort of thing, we can see from this verse that he's talking about very big structures of time. He's talking about God's purposes and patterns of God's working that span centuries, even millennia. Down to this very day, says Paul. That's a long time. That's a big structure. That's a big segment of human history. And does that, just thinking about that, does that then give you a sense of the largeness of what is happening? Are you starting to get a feel for what God is doing here, for the bigness of this story that God is working out? Right, this whole thing, the hardening of the hearts of his own people. Think about it. That's just one movement. That is one movement in the story. And it's been going on for quite a long time. There's more movements to come. As we'll see in a moment. But what a movement this is. Which leads us then to the second part of the verses before this morning. Romans 11, 11 to 15. Now remember, Paul's trying to reconcile the fact that on the one hand, God has not rejected his people with the fact that the vast majority of his people have rejected their Messiah, Jesus. Paul's reconciling those two realities in verses 7 to 10 and saying that while there was an elect remnant, a minority, a handful that responded to the gospel, the vast majority had not, and the reason they had not was to be found in God's admittedly mysterious master plan that included his hardening the hearts of his own people, rendering them unwilling and incapable of responding. Which then pulls another question out of Paul, another rhetorical question. It's right there in uh, verse 11. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? That's the question. When a person stumbles, they haven't yet fallen. They're off balance. They've tripped. They're maybe lurching forward. They might go down, but they might not. And in asking this question, Paul is equating Israel's having hardened hearts with stumbling. As something that might lead to disaster and actual and complete fall 
but it might not. In other words, this is Paul poetically asking whether this situation of his people having hardened hearts is permanent. Is there any hope here? Is there any recovery from this at any point in the future for God's people? Again, having asked the question rhetorically, Paul then answers it. Did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means, he says. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Now, I am speaking to you Gentiles, inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? So what's Paul saying here? Obviously a lot. I'm just going to highlight a couple things. First of all, Paul's saying no. Right? This situation of God's hardening of the hearts of his people, Israel, that is not a permanent situation. It's a stumble, to use the metaphor of the passage, but it's not a fall. It's been going on for a while, absolutely. It looks like it's going to go on for a while yet, but it will not go on forever. When will it stop? 11.25 says, when the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Whenever that is. But here's the main thing to see. This stumbling, this hardening of hearts is not without a purpose. It's not without a purpose. God's actions, His choices, His providences, His dealings with His own people Israel inexplicably hard at times, relentlessly merciful at others, but his providences have been purposeful and directional. He hasn't done anything that he's done as some sort of exercise or proof of divine freedom. He doesn't have a point to make to anybody. God is not on trial. No explanations are owed to anyone, anywhere in the universe. That's not what drives him. It's all coming out of who he is, It's all coming out of his perfections, his character. There's been a purpose behind all of his providences, even and especially the harder ones, the more difficult ones to grasp, much less accept. And what Paul is doing, he's giving us a glimpse of what some of God's purposes have been and how he has orchestrated them all within this medium that we call human history. He's pulling back the curtain a little bit Letting us in, so to speak, on some of what God's doing in this universe and in this story here. And how he's going about it. And what Paul makes clear in these verses is that there was and there is a purpose behind even the hardened hearts of God's people Israel. Namely this. It's so that the work of the gospel might spread beyond Israel and go into all the world to reach the Gentiles. As a result of the hardening of hearts amongst God's people, Israel, culminating in the rejection of Jesus as their Messiah. But in the wake of all that, the work of the kingdom widened out to include and reach the Gentiles, the non-Jewish people. Which is what the Apostle Paul's work was chiefly about. And as you read the accounts of the book of Acts, you see this literally played out over and over again. 
Acts 13, verse 44. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, meaning first to you Jews, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed, and the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. Do you see it there? The hardening of Jewish hearts results literally in Paul and Barnabas turning to the Gentiles. And that little scene is played out all over the book of Acts. See Acts 18, 1-6, for example. And it's continued to play out ever since then right up to our own day and beyond. But there's more. Right? Paul isn't finished here. He's already widened out the camera lens, so to speak, to reveal a bigger picture of what God has been doing on the stage of history with regard to the Jews and Gentiles and non-Jews. We've seen that piece of the big picture. But then contained in what Paul says here in verse 11 to 15 is an indicator of another subsequent phase of human history. You see it in Paul's reference in verse 12 to their full inclusion, by which he means the Jews. And uh, you see it again in verse 15 when Paul talks about their acceptance. The Jews' acceptance of the gospel. What is it that Paul has in view here? Simply put, he seems to have in view a coming time when God's blessing of the Gentiles will have its intended effect as it generates a godly jealousy and envy amongst the Jews, which we won't try and define at this point. We'll talk about that later. But there will be an envy that is born not of an illegitimate desire and discontent and wanting something that one should not want, but rather born of a legitimate longing to share in a good and beautiful and right thing that one has become aware of and it's compelling for all the right reasons. And then even beyond that, there seems to be a hint of possibly a third movement, a third phase, when after the bringing in of a newly responsive Israel, there'll be something, some sort of response that would be so powerful, so amazing, that Paul uses the language of resurrection to refer to it. Verse 15, For if there, meaning the Jewish peoples, the nation, rejection means the reconciliation of the world, by which he means the Gentiles, if their re- rejection means the reconciliation of the world, What will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? To try and nail down what Paul has in view there would be to resort to um, almost sheer speculation at this point. But whatever it is, it will be powerful. It will be transformational. It will be as transformational as seeing a dead person come to life. So what we see here is what more than one scholar has referred to as God's chain of blessing, right? Israel's hardening and rejection of God results in the gospel going out to the Gentiles. Many, many Gentiles being saved. This response of the Gentiles, in turn, will provoke a godly jealousy and envy amongst the Jewish people. And they see the blessing of God poured out of the Gentiles result in Israel's full inclusion, which doesn't mean what it might sound like it means, but we'll talk about that another day. 
But then the response of God's chosen people as they turn, return, and return will result in even greater blessing being poured out and will transform things in a degree and a manner that will be staggering, as staggering as life being given to the dead. Huge, large movements in human history. Now, this was the case last week. We haven't gotten to the end of chapter 11. Paul has a little more to say about this whole matter of the Jewish people and their unresponsiveness to the Lord Jesus. We know that the underlying causes behind the Jews' response are to be found in both divine sovereignty and human responsibility. We know that one of the consequences of these things is that indeed the nation of Israel on the whole has continued in its unresponsiveness for quite some time, as has been the case with God's people throughout the Old Testament. There's always been a faithful remnant that God has preserved, nevertheless. And that remnant has been preserved not because of their own inherent worthiness or righteousness, but because of God's grace and mercy. Still, the vast majority of God's people haven't responded. Their hearts have been hardened. But even that hardening is not without purpose. It's not to be regarded as a permanent feature. Its purpose was to bring in the inclusion of the Gentiles. And that's an institution that has a use-by date on it. So stay tuned, there's more to come. Some takeaways from all this, very briefly. First of all, I think this is very encouraging in many ways. This whole thing, right? This, this ride that we call history, um, it's going somewhere. Things aren't just happening. History is progressing. It's moving forward. There's a story unfolding here. A story as big as the whole universe. Everything that is happening is a part of the story. You're part of the story. Which means you don't have to live without hope. It means you, you roll out of bed and your feet hit the floor in the morning and you aren't faced every day with the task of creating meaning and purpose for your life. There's already in place meaning and purpose that's going on in God's universe that is ready and waiting for you to plug into. What a gift that is. What a blessing that is. As you want to know how great a blessing just the gift of meaning itself is, spend some time with someone who doesn't have it, who doesn't believe it, or who struggles to hold on to it. What a privilege to be able to wake up and say, Good morning, Father. Open my eyes to see what it is you are doing today and then help me to understand how I can be a part of that. That is an amazing blessing. And if you don't believe it, talk to people who don't have that hope and that blessing. Secondly, I hope you're blown, somewhat blown away by this, this sweeping nature of God's grasp and employment and direction and guidance and unfolding of human history. I hope you're humbled by the sheer bigness of God's plan and how it's been playing out over centuries, over millennia. And I hope the largeness of this plan will humble you on the one hand, but on the other hand, I hope it will also give you confidence and a sense of security that comes from knowing that your future is in the hands of this God who has that sort of grasp of human history and what's going on in the world. 
thirdly, I hope you'll be even more greatly encouraged in the knowledge that God, our God, is in the business of using hard things. He's in the business of bringing good and ultimate purposes out of hard providences and difficult realities. As Stevenson puts it, the rejection of Israel did not in any way nullify the plan of God. Rather, it fulfilled the plan of God. The rejection of Israel was fulfilling the plan of God. And of course, while God uses the hardening of his own people, uh, his use of that is a great example of uh, his using difficult and even evil things for good purposes. The cross of Christ remains as the greatest example of God's bringing the highest possible good, which is salvation, from the worst possible circumstance, which was divine condemnation on his own son. And finally, please note as part of all this, the amazing patience of God. Of God who is willing to work out his purposes over millennia. And what some might look at and call slowness on God's part is in reality simply the illustration of his mercy and his kindness. A merciful patience on God's part that has resulted in the salvation of the Gentiles in general and your salvation and my salvation in particular. And will continue to result in the salvation of others until Jesus returns. And so recognizing that reality, let me encourage you to pray. And I'll be praying with you. But pray for God to move us to see this space that we have, this time, not only as God's opportunity to save, but as our opportunity to partner with Him in that. To introduce others to this God who moves heaven and earth, who not only moves heaven and earth, but who leaves heaven for earth to seek and find and redeem and save a people for himself. Please pray with me. Father, we thank you for the comfort and knowledge that um, you are working and have been working and that you can and do work in and through every single circumstance, including ones that are hard to, to grasp on the surface, even the hardening of the hearts of your own people how you use that for a greater good and glory. Father, we thank you for um, that reminder this morning. May it lead us, Father, to trust you. Um, initially, Father, to trust you for what you've done for us through the Lord Jesus Christ through the tragedy slash victory of the cross and the amazing blessings of forgiveness and redemption and being adopted into your family and being your people. And help us, Father, to, to believe that and embrace that if we haven't.
but then to go on and continue to believe, Father, that you continue working and that your purposes have not diminished or slowed or veered to the right or the left and you are still moving ahead as Paul saw. And help us to see that, Father, in the particular circumstances of our own lives, individually, and for us as a whole, as a church. Help us, Father, to see and to be... um, sensitive to and aware of what it is you are doing daily. Give us a heart and a desire to be part of that, to participate with you in this great thing that you are doing. Do you work out your plans and purposes? We pray these things in Jesus' name, for his sake. Amen. Now take up an offering for those who want to support this church and a number of different agencies and individuals that we support as well. Yeah.